1: Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and my guest this week is the screenwriter and playwright Jack Thorne. Jack is one of the most sought after writers working today. His work includes Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, a stage play in the West End, the films Wonder and Enola Holmes, and the TV shows Help, His Dark Materials, and his most recent work, Best Interests. Jack was diagnosed with autism at the age of 42. And is still processing this nearly two years on. We discussed this as well as his incredible career and his activism. I hope you enjoyed. Jack Thorne, good to talk to you. One of the skills that you had as a child was working out ways to watch tv for as long as possible are those skills still in good shape today
2: (laughs) uh not 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 as much i've got i've got a seven-year-old kid um that gets up very early in the morning so we get about an hour of tv a day now whereas as a kid i would specialize in three four hours of tv every night so yeah no my skills have dropped considerably but what was driving you I just loved it. I just love stories. And I love particularly stories on, on television. We, me and my little sister, my dad didn't like us watching Home and Away and Neighbours. Really? And so one of us would have to look literally sit looking out of the window um, for his car coming home and the other got to watch Home and Away and Neighbours. So I, I only watched, you know, Australians uh, having fun for half the week and the rest of the half the week I watched The Window and it was still worth it to just be part of those stories.
1: It's a rather proud boast, isn't it? I was banned by my father from watching Neighbours. I mean, that's something, isn't it? <laughs>
2: he just saw them as trash. And so he thought that we should be better than that. My dad had high expectations for us all the time.
1: I mean, was watching television disliked by your parents or were you encouraged?
2: No, they didn't. They didn't uh, hate it. My mum uh, is from Harrow and My dad's from Walthamstow. And so they. my mum would watch EastEnders with me. And we'd watch a lot of stuff and we'd talk a, mm. a lot about about TV. My dad was out quite a lot in the evenings because he was a town planner. And so there was always something going on in the evenings that was summoning him to um, his council. But me and my mum would watch TV quite solidly uh, together, and my little sister too. And Saturday nights was uh, Blind Date followed by Gladiators. All of us sat around the TV together uh, eating pizza and oven chips. That That was our ritual.
1: But was television, therefore, a very central part of your growing up culture?
2: I would say my parents would probably say not. But for me... Uh, It was. So it was the thing that drew me more than anything else. I love books. I read lots of books. I never slept well as a kid, so I would read very late into the night. But when I got to sit in front of the TV, that's when I felt most comfortable, most happy, to the detriment of my social life, a bit to the detriment of my homework. I always did okay at that. I just loved it. Can we see this as a thread in your development to adult life? I think TV has a remarkable power. And I don't think people often appreciate the power of news, of dramas, to tell stories that draw people in. Like yourself, I did them at Taggart Lecture, and I described TV as an empathy box, and I really believe that. I think that 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 instrument in the corner of the room that's blaring light at us does give you the opportunity to go into other people's lives. I remember when Mark Fowler revealed he had HIV I remember being absolutely shocked and astonished by it and not understanding it and there was to some degree i mean i was a child but there was to some degree i thought of uh, hiv and aids as a, as a more of a problem in the gay community and so the fact that he was straight was shocking to me all these different things were were shocking to me and and the way that his family reacted to it was also fascinating to me as and seeing his journey through that and you know those kinds of stories I think have made me who I am and I'm I'm grateful for TV for that. It's a really
1: remarkable insight into television as an informant.
2: Yeah, I think it is.
1: And when you think of the pressures on so many families, don't you let your children watch too much television and all this sort of stuff? Very bad for you, no?
2: Yeah, and it's I'm sure there are elements and mm-hmm. and I think I think right now. TV is not perhaps... Sometimes we're getting it right and sometimes we're not. There isn't a lot of drama about death, a lot of drama about crime and all those things on TV at the moment. And we're struggling to tell the sort of stories that we used to be able to in this country... That doesn't involve crime, and I'm a bit worried about that. But but TV's responsibility, I think, is is really stark, and and I'm grateful for the TV I watched when I was young.
1: But isn't it perhaps a plus that death was talked about and is talked about on television, both dramatically and in terms of the news and everything else, and therefore it becomes something that people grow up understanding a little more.
2: Yes, it depends on the type of death though, and it depends on the handling of death. Mm-hmm. And there's some really, really brilliant crime drama, and I'm not slating crime drama at all. But if it's constantly the only way to get people talking is to set up a mystery that involves a dead body, and and you sit and you watch someone going through a set of clues, I, I like those shows, I watch those shows, but I wish that those weren't the only shows we saw on TV. And I think there is a danger that that is becoming increasingly the case.
1: You yourself are almost always working on multiple projects at the same time does your brain ever switch off
2: no i wish it did and i need i need two projects at once uh, in order to keep going i can't i can't sleep if i'm working on one project because as soon as i run into a problem i just fixate on that problem and i can't see my way out of it so with
1: two projects you park one if it gets tricky yeah and get feels, on with the other one
2: and feel slightly more successful which just gives you the ability to to sleep whereas if i'm feeling like a failure i really struggle with sleeping i've just had a show on tv and at the moment i'm really struggling with with sleeping i i'm really um because i'm just constantly re-editing the show in my brain in a not very helpful way
1: you mean when you watch it as a consumer yes you see things you didn't see
2: i am trying to work out what could have been different and what the effect of that difference might have made yes Interesting, so you're never at peace even though you've finished writing the element. It sounds very grand, but no I'm never I am never at peace no I'm <laughs> constantly uh, uh, trying to work out how to how to do something better.
1: Do you wake up at night a lot?
2: Yes uh, I've got a ring I've got an aura ring which measures my sleep and uh, I was awake for an hour and a half last night between two and a half three.
1: And do you know why you were awake for an hour and a half? fretting, worrying about creativity?
2: Yes, and about what I need to do to solve a particular project I'm working on that i I just didn't feel the script was quite right, so I just found myself just going back into that again in a not healthy way because it wasn't productive. i didn't and I didn't end up coming up with any conclusions that were any use. I just worried, you know it was just an anxiety cloud hole for a while.
1: It strikes me as slightly exhausting,
2: yes, yes. But was working in Channel 4 not exhausting? Did you, were you not exhausted all the time?
1: Not really, no. I, um, this is about you, not about me. But I, yes. I would say that I found it an absolute joy. Very energising. I was never really troubled by it. I mean, dreadful things happened. And you had to report for them. But I mean, no, I loved every minute of it.
2: And you were able to put it in a box?
1: I suppose to a certain extent, yes, absolutely.
2: But obviously, since I stopped, I miss it greatly. I found your McTaggart lecture one of the most inspiring pieces of, uh, you know, spoken word that I've, the way that you talked about Grenfell and the way that you talked about the media's responsibility and the fact that the media had become such an enclave of exclusivity that it wasn't able to see beyond its little bubble. I find myself thinking about that challenge all the time. Did that not cause you sleeplessness? Did that not cause you quite a lot of torment? I mean, I remember seeing the images of you Hmm. at at the site when you were being shouted at. Did that not cause you pain? I want to say that it did, but it didn't.
1: Somehow, when you're dealing with grim facts, I, I honestly think that you couldn't do the job if in some way your brain was able to say, this is very troubling, it's Other people's lives, you have the responsibility to explain them to other people who weren't here and want to know what's happened. But in the end, it's nothing to do with you in
2: terms of your own soul. But weren't you questioning the media's soul?
1: I was, but and I suppose to an extent I was questioning my own role, but I can honestly say I didn't stay awake at night due to what I had been doing in the day. Which may make me sound a rather insensitive person, but we're not here to talk about
2: me. No, no, sorry. You
1: keep turning the tables yes, on me. Sorry, This sorry. will not do.
2: I will get fired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when you appeared on Desert Island Discs, your luxury item was a TV with the entire history of Channel 4 on it. An inspired choice.
2: Why so? Uh, well, when I was appearing on uh, Desert Island Discs, the privatisation of Channel 4 was very, very much in the uh, in the air. And so I wanted to do something that was celebratory about Channel 4. That was that was part of it. I mean,
1: some people wouldn't know what the battle was about privatisation.
2: No. Well, it was a very strange battle. And I would say that some people quite intimately involved in it uh, didn't understand what it was about. You know, some of the politicians involved in it didn't seem to understand how Channel 4 was financed, how Channel 4 worked, any of those things. But I spent as a writer most of my career at Channel 4 and I still write for Channel 4 quite extensively, and I love it. I love the BBC, but I love Channel 4's energy, and I love the fact that it sits in contrast, seemingly, to to most of the other media, and I love its anger, and I love its waywardness, and I... I would be very happy sitting on the on a desert island watching Channel 4 News or or Countdown or any of the amazing dramas that were on Channel 4 over and over again. Do you think the channel was ever in danger or? Oh, I think it was in very, very serious danger. Really? And I think if Boris had stayed in charge, we would be staring at privatization now because I think there were various forces within his government that really, really wanted it. But he went and the energy went out of his government even before that. And with that energy, Channel Force privatisation sailed away. But there were a lot of very remarkable people that were doing quite remarkable work behind the scenes, I know, and are probably now all exhausted from hmm. from trying to keep it as a public service broadcaster.
1: What do you find so peaceful about writing?
2: So I am autistic. I was diagnosed late last year.
1: Gosh, that's late in life.
2: Yes, very late. So I was on Desert Island Discs and uh, a man wrote to my agent and said i think that jack might be autistic and i think he should i think he should look into it and of course my first question to my agent was what do you think and my agent who's represented me on and off since i was 24 said well you know uh, has it not ever occurred to you so she clearly thought i was autistic and then i went downstairs to my wife and i said you know i've just had this email and i rachel taylor my agent thinks it might be uh, there might be foundation to it and what do you think and and rachel my wife they both call rachel which is very confusing said yeah no of course you're autistic uh, and so i started looking into it
1: but when she said yes of course you're autistic do you think she really meant it and that she lived uh, openly within herself with an autistic person
2: well it, it always been the case that people have sort of said of me that you're somewhere on the spectrum Right. Mm-hmm. So that was always being. The, but you know how those sorts of things were said very lightly. Yeah. And, and you just kind of went, oh, OK. And and you, you think know,
1: of the spectrum as an extremely large thing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And now the spectrum, you know, okay. I asked where I sat on the spectrum when I got diagnosed and they said, we do not we do not subscribe to the idea of a spectrum anymore. You're oh, autistic or you're not. Mm. And, and we don't want there to be a sort of sliding scale because uh, that's no use to anyone. So I So how old were you at the moment of which I think I was 42 and I'm now 44 and it took me about a year to to go through the process partly due to my own hesitancy and at the end of it I got this diagnosis and what was the process uh well I went to my GP spoke to hmm. my GP and the GP said yes this sounds right and I'm going to um well, they didn't say you're autistic. They just said, yes, this sounds like something we should investigate. And and I'm going to send you to a psychiatrist. I went to a psychiatrist who said, yes, This there might be something to this. You can go through the NHS mental health service if you want, but that will take you a long time. If you have the money, I would recommend you go to a private service. And the health service is under quite a lot of strain at the moment. So I, I went to a, a private firm who interviewed me Interviewed my sister, had me fill in various different forms, did various different things, and then at the end of it went, yes, you're autistic.
1: God, I mean, this in your 40s is a tremendous upheaval in your brain.
2: Yes, it's been more of an upheaval than I expected. It does make sense for a lot of things from my childhood. Uh, You know, there was a reason why I much preferred watching TV than spending time with my friends. (laughs) You You know, and the notion of friends was not, I didn't necessarily have close friends and i found the outside world i still do find the outside world i find social interaction exhausting so to get back to your question the reason why i find peace in writing is because the the one bit there's an awful lot of stuff talked about autism there's an awful lot of stuff that i don't personally find that helpful the thing that i have found hugely helpful is this thing that they talk about masking that you know that you're you're creating something that's consumable by others constantly you know that you're constantly creating a character a version of yourself that can be consumed and we all do that to some degree autistic people probably do it to a greater degree and they say that a reason why a lot of girls don't get diagnosed as autistic um, is because they are very adept at masking and i think like a lot of those girls i was very adept at masking writing is the process of masks masks as such a such a part of drama you know mask suggests archetypes but actually I don't think you know that masks can be very fluid things and so that process of creating a character of creating a world of creating all those different things I find very pleasurable and peaceful then I can't do it or then I you know i'm uh, become less good at it or any of those different things run into a, a hole and that's when i stop sleeping so you know it's not it's not always peaceful but but when it's going well it's um you know it's like a, a like a cool river it's lovely so you're glad you were diagnosed uh yes i am glad that i was diagnosed i am not i am still processing whether it would have helped me to be diagnosed earlier hmm. Because I'm very happy in my life.
1: Were either of your parents alive when you were diagnosed?
2: Oh, yeah, both of them are still around. Really? Yeah, yeah. So what did they make of it? They weren't sure for a very long time. It didn't make sense to them for a long time. If I'd asked them, they'd have said, no way, you're autistic. And so we're we're all still processing it, but they understand it a bit better now. You know, we've talked about it and they understand it a bit better now.
1: You have a public life. Did you feel the need to use who you are To talk about it or did you choose not
2: to talk about it? Oh, I yes, I I did talk about it. I I wrote a piece on Twitter. I was then invited on BBC Breakfast and the Today programme and all those (laughs) different things. And I said no because I didn't understand it and I didn't want to get all these different questions about it without having some sense of what it meant. And I didn't really have a sense of what it meant at the time.
1: How long has it taken you to discover what it means?
2: I'm still discovering it. I'm, I, but I'm much more comfortable with it than I was then.
1: And do you have regular therapy? I shouldn't ask these personal questions, but, <laughs> but you raised it. So, I mean, do do you have regular therapy, etc.? No,
2: I don't. know. <clears throat> and uh, I don't feel that that would help me. Yeah, um, I might do. Uh, but um, it's not something that I'm focused on at the moment.
1: But the way you tell it at the moment is that it, it's actually a positive thing, that, that in fact yeah, a lot of issues are resolved, in a sense, by understanding that
2: you yes. have something. But the the difficulty becomes, as it does with all labels, that you settle back and you go, well, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, because I'm autistic, and I don't want to do that either. No. So I, that's the balance I'm still trying to strike, of just going... I'm not going to come to your Christmas party because it's always filled me with horror. I've been before many times, but I I don't like it. And it doesn't, you know, I don't think I'm a particularly good guest either. Hmm. So that, that side of autism I'm embracing and just going, you know, there's a reason why I'm not comfortable in those situations. Many autistic people are, by the way. I'm not making a judgment on other autistic hmm. people. I'm talking about my autism. But equally, um, I don't want that to sort of become oh, right, okay, now I'm not going to talk to anyone because because I don't feel comfortable and so therefore I'm sort of hiding myself away. But how know.
1: has it affected
2: your confidence? My confidence is quite fluid, so I couldn't say whether it has or hasn't. You know, well, that, there's
1: a confidence in your public life, if you like, and then there's a confidence in your relationships with people that you're close to.
2: Yes, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question because... But you
1: don't seem to be uncomfortable.
2: Well, that's good. Uh, and then I'm a stranger. Yes, and this is a contained environment where I know exactly what's expected of me, and I'm trying to perform to those expectations. You know that that's that's what this this is. This booth is.
1: But if you had to construct a graph of your development and your life, yes, will there be a big hiccup at the point at which you went public with yourself, as it were, and with the public? about your condition?
2: I don't think so. I think the hiccups will be when I did work I wasn't proud of. There was a there was a period when I wasn't professionally happy. That would be a huge hiccup. But that wasn't to do with autism. That was just I wasn't writing very well. There would be a hicc- big hiccup when my son was born because suddenly none of that made... You know, suddenly the world didn't make sense. Hmm. Um, And I was scared in ways that I'd never been scared before and feeling very inadequate and full of a strange sort of love the entire time. So you know th- those are the big hiccups. I wouldn't say that the diagnosis I would put on par with any of those things.
1: You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. You've written a new play, which is about the birth of the BBC, which now finds itself under threat. Is there any saving it?
2: I think the BBC is a very peculiar and wonderful institution. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I was attracted to the story of its birth was because it's so interesting how the questions that were around then are still the questions being asked now. One of is the BBC as an institution responsible to the government or the peace of the time? So how does the BBC navigate Brexit? How does the BBC navigate COVID? Hmm. You know, two different things where I think it's possible to argue that in lots of ways the BBC was proved not so successful on Brexit but hugely successful on COVID, where the the, the way that having the institutional might of the BBC calming people down through it and explaining what was going on to everyone and hosting the conferences and doing all those sorts of things was incredibly valuable. Mm. So, But in a I, sense, it's kind of... You would expect
1: that because, obviously, Brexit was so much more political.
2: Well, COVID was political... But in a different way. In a different way, yes, yes. And I don't know. I don't know that you could say that that there is a... I don't... I I would be interested to think about that more i don't because i think covid was politicized in other countries perhaps more than it was here i think i think actually we could have done with it being politicized a bit more than it was here in terms of the treatment of the disabled and the treatment of care homes and the treatment of all those sorts of things but but that notion of stay calm wear your mask all that things said with the bbc's authority despite the fact we had such a chaotic prime minister did, I think, provide a level of peace that was useful to the country at the time. So did it stimulate you or did it flatten you? Uh, It made me incredibly angry. Creative? I hope so. I think so. A bit more political. So I'm heavily involved in the disabled community. I've spent much of my life in and around the disabled community. And right at the start of COVID, I worked with a company called Grey Eye, theatre company, who I'm a patron and I talked to the artistic director there and said what can we do to just keep um, our artists going through all this and we talked about doing this in Crips Without Constraints that was just a series of little shorts that we put on with disabled actors, disabled writers writing pieces for disabled actors to perform and that was beautiful. Through that I had one conversation with a writer which shocked me where they talked about ventilation and access to ventilation and the fact that they would be denied access to ventilation should they need it. That they'd been told explicitly that they would be denied access to ventilation. And then I talked to many of my other friends in the disabled community and realised quite what was going on. And it really, really scared me. What was going on? Well, disabled people were, were being denied care. And care homes were being deliberately excluded from the healthcare system and not supported in the way that they should have been supported considering how considering how many vulnerable people were involved has that been fully exposed to this date uh not fully and i think the covid inquiry is looking into that and and i think
1: will you testify
2: oh i'm not i'm not interesting enough to testify but i hope a lot but of other people will you have testify. some understanding i have some understanding but i'm a writer i'm not uh but what i did do what i could do was two different things so i wrote a drama called help that was about care homes Mm -hmm. during the crisis and we tried to get that on as quickly as possible because it felt like shouting as loudly as possible at that time was really useful and then the other thing was with a bunch of friends we started this thing called underlying health condition because again the notion that our society decided that deaths could be divided into two was really, really troubling. You know, that we, we had deaths that we worried about and then deaths that we don't. And the deaths that we don't were people with underlying health conditions, i.e. disabled people. And we said, well, they don't. we don't worry about them because they're not us. We othered them completely. Mm-hmm. And so we started this group, Underlying Health Condition, which has now with a number of other groups joined together to form this group, the TV Access Project. Mm-hmm. And the TV Access Project is trying to change accessibility in television because disabled stories don't get told on TV. And the reason why disabled stories don't get told on TV is because disabled people aren't employed in television. And the reason why they aren't employed is because of bias. But it's also to do with the fact that our industry is stupendously inaccessible. So a whole number of rooms and practices and everything else are built without a disabled person in consideration. Well uh, you
1: talked about this very strongly in your McTaggart lecture. Yes. Media lecture which is delivered by, you know, somebody important like you. And uh, you. Well <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess we both have done it. Uh but anyway, and you said TV had failed disabled people. Yes. Um do you still hold to that?
2: No, I think there's been remarkable improvements since then. It's uh, it's far from done, but but this TV access project, which I don't run you know, it's run by people far better than I, but I'm very much a core part part of it, has set up a number of different groups which are looking at different areas of television. And very importantly, we've got broadcaster buy-in. And this is where public service broadcasting really comes into its own, not just in the people at those broadcasters, but the fact that everyone else, all the other broadcasters have also probably at one point in their career or another, been through that system, so you know more or less everyone that works at Netflix, at Apple, at uh, Disney Plus have come through the BBC at some point or other, or Channel Four. And Charlotte Moore and Ian Katz were hugely supportive right from the beginning.
1: These were people with the power to, exactly, the real commission, exactly. And yeah.
2: and and what they've done is that they've really empowered us to set up a si- system of standards and to really start to question. How our buildings should look and how our practices should change. And it's been remarkable. It's not done. There's still a massive lack of disabled people working in television. But if we can get more disabled uh, makeup and hair, if we can get more disabled producers, writers, directors, if we can get more, you know, authorship comes across the mm. board mm. and then we're going to see a remarkable change in terms of the stories that we see on television and the authenticity of those stories. Well, in
1: your new TV show, Best Interests, you write a complex disabled story where a family is driven apart by having to make choices no parent would ever want to make. What was the spark for that story?
2: Well, it came from a producer called Sophie Gardner, who is someone I've worked with for 20 years. Uh, And she pointed me in the direction of this, and I thought it was fascinating. Best interest cases were fascinating, and I hadn't come across them. This notion that in these cases, that there will be three parties minimum represented in the courtroom, one representing the parents, one representing the doctors, one representing the child. The idea that neither parent nor doctor can represent the child, I thought was dramatically fascinating. Then we started looking into it. Well, it's
1: counter nature, isn't
2: it? Yeah. Because... Who is responsible? Normally, the biological exact parent. You know that if you're if you're in a hospital, the doctors in charge. Generally, if you're mm-hmm. not in a hospital, the, <laughs> the parents in charge. Indeed. not. And 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 the notion that that our court system has said no, there needs to be someone else that's representing the child. I thought was really really interesting. So then you start looking into it, finding out the stories, finding out how it all works, and you start hearing testimony from people and. The testimony we heard was extraordinary, from parents, doctors, lawyers, mediators, all these different levels of this of the service. And then, and so it felt like, well, there is a story that has to be told. Actually, it
1: must have been quite a therapeutic exercise for them, let alone for you. I'm not
2: sure it was. I know. Well, had they we, talked
1: about it before?
2: A bit, but the people that we talked to were very, very raw. And the damage these cases do because they get in the media spotlights can be horrific, you know, for everyone involved because it always becomes a very basic story of who's right, who's wrong. And the complexity is lost. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 I don't know that we helped them particularly by, by hearing them. They were very brave and, and it was often quite raw hearing their stories but I was hugely grateful to them for, for it, and, and and I think it, it changed the drama enormously.
1: I must say this is a very emotionally charged area of, I mean, even probing you about what you've been writing in terms of looking at disability and how society deals with it. And I'm wondering, how many times have you struggled to write something and just put it in a drawer?
2: Quite Quite a few times. Not because emotionally I didn't feel up to it, Mostly because I couldn't find a way of telling the story. Hmm. And But you knew what the story was. Well, in this case, yes. Hmm. Yes. This took a while to find and we went all around the houses and actually I I got you know, you need to ask, I think, quite basic questions of yourself through this process, Hmm. which is why am I telling this? You know, I think you need to always be asking why am I telling this? And do I want this to be the way that it's writing as? I got very concerned that this would be a parents versus the NHS. That didn't, I, I thought that that would lose complexity very, very quickly. And the moment when it came alive to me was when I realized it could be about parent versus parent. Because then you're into the emotion of it, then you can tell a story that's got lots of shades within it and lots of history within it, and it doesn't just become please don't kill my child, it becomes, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I think I want this. I think I want that. Which is what I feel like we're all like the entire time, hmm. rather than certain. Certainty is a very, very hard thing to come by. I I love writing, and uh, I'm really lucky to do it, but I often find myself writing stuff that's bland.
1: Is that because you've self-censored in some way?
2: No, it's because I've just not found that, I've not found the fascination. All I've found is the outside of something rather than the inside of something.
1: You became a young Labour officer in Newbury and were 18 years old during the 1997 election. Do you find yourself being just as politically engaged now as you were then?
2: I'm not as politically engaged as I think I should be. I think the TV Access Project is a political project, so uh, I'm proud to be involved in that. When I lived in Luton, I lived in Luton for eight years and I was secretary of my branch and treasurer of my branch and various other different things. And I did feel like I was involved in the Labour Party, truly involved in the Labour Party. Since then, since getting married and having a kid and everything else, I have drifted a bit and I need to address that. But I quite, haven't quite worked out how to yet.
1: Well, it's a wonderful drift, isn't it? Let's face it. You, yes. you've uh, moved on. Yes, it but, must be treasured.
2: Yes, no, it's it is to be treasured, but at the same time, you know, we're coming up to one of the most important le- elections, I think, in a while in terms of. I agree. The future of our country feels genuinely on the line, and I do feel passionately that le- the Labour Party is the way forward, mm. and uh, and so yeah, I've just got to work out how to how to be useful
1: without in any way taking sides history is going to ask how on earth a country with our history, a country with our systems and politics and the rest, ever allowed the lunacy that has occupied Downing Street in the Johnson years?
2: Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. And the lack of care. And I think the COVID inquiry is going to show uh, something quite remarkable in terms of the the lack of responsibility taken for people, vulnerable people, and I am, I am hopeful that that people will get in serious trouble because they should do because people died.
1: There's going to be a lot of guilt though amongst the journalistic fraternity, amongst the medical fraternity, the legal fraternity.
2: Yeah, so much was missed. So much was missed, but I suspect that what it will show is that there was. A knowing negligence at times mm. amongst our political class that will be really troubling when it's mm. when it's exposed.
1: Well you can't really have a, a worse example than the idea that you were telling the country to behave in a certain way. Yeah. And then you managed quite openly, yeah. It seems openly enough for the authorities to find out, all sorts of misbehaviour was going on inside Downing Street.
2: So when I was doing um, this drama Help that was about the care homes during the pandemic, there was a woman we talked to who ran a care home who, and this was, this was during the third lockdown, I think, second, third lockdown that we were talking to her and she just started sobbing and saying, I've let my gentleman down. And the way that, the way that they were betrayed by everyone, in the crisis the way that they were not allowed enough tests that they were not allowed enough ppe support mm. all these horrible things i i think that did come from the top and well and and, it's extraordinary because your
1: mother is maggie is a, a care worker isn't she Yes, yeah,
2: she was she was yeah and she, she inspired
1: retired. the film help yes she did it had a huge impact on
2: us but did any ministers respond to it did you get a call did oh no i no <laughs> no i've never had that call i'm still waiting for that call no no we tried to get it we tried to get it shown in the house of commons and we got close at one point but it just fell away but even if we got it shown you know you'd have had the people that would have turned up to watch it wouldn't have been the people that you'd want to watch it and then matt hancock was on i'm a celebrity so uh, yeah but you see,
1: thinking back now, are we as outraged as we should be about this aspect of the pandemic? I mean, you, you mentioned a name just then, and I mentioned Boris Johnson, et etc. et cetera. I mean, the, there were all sorts of awful moments.
2: There were, and I, I hope that that's what the inquiry's going to reveal. I, I hope that the inquiry will make us feel that anger again. And I but hope it's that... an
1: extraordinary moment because basically, if what was stated is carried out. In other words, is a proper investigation into how life was in that period. Yeah. I mean, it's going to make terrible reading.
2: It is going to make terrible reading. And as I understand it, they're going to be delivering it in different stages, which I think will be fascinating. It's the facts that you're looking for, isn't it? It's it's okay. How much did they, when they were releasing people from hospitals without COVID tests into care homes, how much did they know about the risk that they were taking? And hopefully we can get a sense from this inquiry how much they did know and how much they can be held personally responsible for it.
1: Drama is usually about taking the, the audience on a journey. And one wonders how, let's say, that uh, you know, a play or a, a film is made, and there will be. There will be
2: yeah plenty, plenty I, about yeah.
1: this period. Haven't we suffered enough?
2: Well, this is where we come back to the TV as an empathy box. Yeah. And and my worries about the sort of TV that's getting made at the moment. The culture of TV has been changed quite considerably by international money. So I've I've been doing this 20 years. And in that 20 years, I've seen TV change substantially. Because you cannot make a show on British TV without some well, it's very hard to make a show on British TV without some degree of international finance. If you're, make, if you're making a show with international finance, you've got to be able to justify why a global audience would be interested in it.
1: Got to be global. Can't be enough to have Britain. Exactly. So, yeah.
2: so in, in that situation, how do you make a show about Britain's reaction to the pandemic? Mm. And that's why you end up with a lot of crime shows. Isn't because... that
1: what Channel 4 is for?
2: Yeah, and Channel 4 are being incredibly valiant in trying to make these shows. But it's hard. It's hard because they can't can't afford to spend a huge amount of money on every drama that they make because it's distinctively British. They've got to make shows with the money that they've got. uh, And they've got to make as many shows as possible with that money they've got because they have a responsibility to a broad viewership. So yeah, drama becomes increasingly... Packaged in something. So I don't know whether you saw... And and it becomes very difficult to make shows that exclusively look at our country. And so when you talk about how do we tell the COVID story, that's going to be tough because there isn't money for it. Help was very tough to make and we were able to get finance, but we were able to get finance because we had Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer you know, they're not available for every drama that that has to be told. It's a pity, though,
1: in a sense, that the filmmakers and the drama writers and the rest of it, this is such a big issue, how we treated the pandemic, which, after all, affected the world. Yes. And yet we don't seem to have the resource to visit it creatively.
2: Yeah. As a drama or a film or anything else. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see because there will be people that make stories about it. Hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they do it. But in terms of that sort of landmark BBC Channel 4 drama, hmm. that those dramas are proving harder and harder to make. Hmm. Are you still hungry for work? Oh, yeah. No, I'm still... I love, I love my job and I still want to keep doing it for as long as people let me. And I've still got lots of stories I want to tell.
1: You'll have had two plays on stage in London this year and Best Interests... On BBC One, what does Jack Thorne turn his hand to next?
2: Uh, well, thankfully, people won't be seeing. I, I can't believe that they've all come at the same time. They've all come within a month of each other, basically. You won't be seeing me for dust for a while. Uh, all the stuff I'm doing, none of which I can talk about, because it's none of it has been announced yet, uh, is a bit of a way off, so people can have a break from me for a bit.
1: Well, that's exciting, because we're promised there'll be something at the end of the tunnel.
2: I hope, I hope so. I hope so. You can never be sure, but I hope so.
1: Well, Jack Thorne, thank you very much indeed for thank talking you. with us. Thank really you so great. much for having thank me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to sit down with Jack and hear how passionately he cares about writing and about telling diverse stories. Jack's new play, When Winston Went to War with the Wireless, is at the Donmar Warehouse in London, Until the end of July. And you can watch Best Interests on the BBC iPlayer or follow the link in our episode description. I hope you can join me for the next episode. And until then, bye for now.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.